This is Robert Holmes, and you're listening to Pixelated Audio, featuring the music of Gabriel Knight. Welcome back to Pixelated Audio, a podcast focusing on game audio, its history, and the people behind it. We're your hosts. I'm Brian, and this is Gene, and we've got a great show lined up for today. I'm super excited for this one. Me too. I know. I know you are. You're a little bit. You're a little bit bleary-eyed, getting ready to, uh, like a child waiting for Christmas. Oh, any day that I can talk about some of my favorite games, and I have a lot of games that I love, but this one holds a special place in my heart. And we are very, very pleased to announce that later on in the show, we're going to be talking to Robert Holmes about his work on the game. Yeah. I think the first episode, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the first episode that you came on as a guest, you played a track from Gabriel Knight. I did because I wasn't sure if there was going to be an opportunity to come back to the game. I figured I got to throw something in because this means a lot. <laughs> Now's the time to do it. Well, it's great because this episode, I hadn't played the game before. And you kind of won me over. You're like, man, you just got to try it. You got to sit down and play it. And since I knew we were going to do an episode on it, I was like, okay, I'll give it a good three to four hours just so I understand the game. After after that point, though, I was hooked. I, I can't even begin to explain how good this game is. The storytelling and the, the writing and the narration, uh, the voice, everything just combined creates this 
incredible, amazing experience all these years later. So it's got a excited. few rough edges. Uh, the audio quality on the voices is a little bit crunchy, but you can I, get past it. Yeah, you once you get it. over that, the voice acting is top notch. The story is great. the The setting is is awesome. It, it takes place in New Orleans, and it feels like the real city of New Orleans, or at least as I imagine it must have back then. Uh, I mean, this is the New Orleans that I know. So yeah. <laughs> uh, this is everything I know about. Um, anyway, so let's talk about that track we started off with. That was the theme of Gabriel Knight. It right. comes in really eerie, kind of spooky, and then this really kind of powerful action sequence behind it. And uh, it, it kicks everything up and it's just explosive. Yeah, there's the this kind of aspect of it that's like larger than life, right? right. It starts off... You've got these big choral synths and like keyboards and then bam, just drum hit after drum hit. And then it kind of resolves into the the melody, if you will, the, the theme of Gabriel Knight. And you know, you're going to come out, you're going to persevere, but you're going to struggle along the way. Right, right, right. And the version that we're playing today is actually from the 20th anniversary edition because it just sounds a lot cleaner. Yeah, the original CD version is so compressed that it really just doesn't do this track justice, and we wanted to start the episode off right. Right. So Gabriel Knight is a graphical or point-and-click adventure written and directed by Jane Jensen that combines the vivid setting of New Orleans and challenging puzzle-solving with a brilliant and often dark narrative that includes small touches of this kind of charming humor along the way. It was initially released on December 17th of 1993 for DOS, Windows, and Macintosh by Sierra Online. Yeah, Gabriel Knight was a critical and financial success. It spawned two sequels, The Beast Within and Gabriel Knight 3, Blood of the Sacred, Blood of the Damned, several novelizations and graphic novels, and in 2012, a remake of the first game was successfully kickstarted and released in 2014 as Gabriel Knight Sins of the Father's 20th anniversary on PC, Mac, iOS, and Android. So the remake, as well as the original trilogy, are all still available on Steam and GOG, so you can play whichever version of it you want. Yeah, so we've got a lot of music to get through. Let's get into our next track. This is New Orleans City Map, composed by Robert Holmes for Gabriel Knight. That was New Orleans City Map, composed by Robert Holmes for Gabriel Knight on the PC. This is a, such a fun track. So much energy and happiness. It's like this huge party is going on. Oh, yeah. Mardi Gras. 
The yeah. horn section is uh, is walking down the the line during the parade. Everybody's having a good time. Doing the the right left kind of. Oh yeah, they're swinging. Thing. They're swinging their <laughs> horns back and forth. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a great track. A lot of energy. It's it's very fun to listen to. And this is like the main kind of map of the city and where you get to choose all your different locations. So you're going to constantly kind of hear this throughout the game. It's, yeah, it's kind of mixed in with some city noise, the streets, cars honking, right, you know, right, all right. that sort of stuff. So you've got this really lively, like almost like you're stepping out onto the street and hearing this in the, in the you know in the world, which yeah. is a really cool effect. Really cool. So let's circle back to Sierra Online, the developer and publisher of this game. Founded by husband and wife, Ken and Roberta Williams, one day while sitting around their kitchen table. I guess in 1979, Ken, a programmer at IBM, bought an Apple II for Christmas, originally to create a Fortran compiler on the system. But his wife, Roberta, a real estate speculator, started playing some of the text-based adventure games Ken stumbled across while working and became hooked on the medium. However, knowing that the Apple II had pretty good graphic capabilities at, you know, for the time, she thought having visuals alongside the story would significantly enhance the gaming experience. So the company, consisting of husband and wife team, originally called Online Systems, went to work on the first game, Mystery House. Roberta wrote the script out and worked on the graphics while Ken did the programming. And after about three months, they shipped the very first game ever to combine text with graphics. And Mystery House turned out to be this instant hit, selling over 15,000 copies. And I know 15,000, it doesn't sound like much these days, but in 1980, I mean, computers were still a novelty. So 15,000 copies is incredible. Yeah, pretty much only professionals had computers in 1980. If you weren't using it for your job or you know you were a rich hobbyist there really weren't that many out in the wild back then right so online systems in 1980 moved to Oakhurst, california at the foot of the sierra mountains and was renamed sierra online they produced quite a few titles and by 1983 their sales reached 10 million dollars so these guys like after just a few years had just totally changed from this husband and wife team to this crazy, you know, huge empire. market, <laughs> huge really? market sharing empire. Yeah. Can you imagine it sounds, and it, I always hear these interviews and I can't imagine what it was like, but being the first company to make a game to put graphics with text, it sounds so every day, <laughs> yeah, but it's just like a normal thing. Yeah. But I can't imagine just seeing that for the first time and, and being blown away. And I imagine it must've been incredible to yeah, see. Right. So I know they went on to become this massive pioneer in video games in the American gaming landscape. They basically created the point and click adventure game genre, or at least formalized it. They may not have been the first, but you know, the, uh, they definitely shaped it the way it is today for sure. Oh, they, their mark on it is indelible. I mean, there's without a doubt, Sierra games had a huge influence. Something that we've talked about a lot is the MT32 sound card, and they were actually one of the biggest proponents of it. They secured a deal with Roland to, to be their primary distributor, so that was the reason why it became adopted as a primary standard in audio when sound cards were just coming to be on right, the system. Right, just kind of coming out to fruition. Like This was a new thing, and they were like wanted to be kind of the forerunners in getting this new kind of audio standard out there, and I think that's pretty incredible for a game company to do right we don't we don't even see that anymore yeah it's well it's hard to have that kind of market dominance anymore so it, it but it makes sense because if you're one of the leaders you can say we want our games to have high quality audio and sound we're we can push the envelope by providing this great music for these sound cards or or whatever it is you know graphics cards and and that's what they did 
They also went on to publish tons of games, including Half-Life, one of the best-selling PC games of all time. They were an early publisher of international games like Sorcerian, Thexter, and Silpede, and most notably, they were known for lots and lots of games, mostly in the, the Quest series, right? They had lots and lots of games like King's Quest, Space Quest, Police Quest, and the Quest spin-off. Quest for Glory. And all, exactly. Uh, yeah. Eco Quest, Dr. Brain, Leisure Suit Larry, who could forget. <laughs> Doesn't have Quest, but it plays very similarly. Right. And right. Gabriel Knight. Right. So they continued to make hits throughout the 90s, but after a series of reorgs and acquisitions by CUC International, the company ultimately dissolved around 2002. So, you know, they did have a bit of a period of time where they weren't very active, but... It's good that they are still alive in some form. They were acquired recently by Activision. And while they're mostly just using it as licenses, they did recently make the King's Quest game in 2015. Right. And now it's kind of, it's almost like just putting the brand name on there, the logo. I don't really know how much involvement any of the original Sierra people had in this. I think it's more of just that license. But No, but I'm pretty sure that the developers were paying a lot of respect to the original games, at least in terms of the feel of the game, the, right. the sort of the the original spirit right. I of think the so King's too. Quest games. And I know that this isn't going to be the only game they have planned, at least uh, to sort of bring back some of those Sierra licenses. And we hear about companies all the time where... They get bought out, and we pretty much never hear about that ever again. Right. So, and then it makes you know old school PC gamers like us dorks. We see that you know Sierra logo pop up, and we're like, oh, oh yes, Sierra's back. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could talk about Sierra for days, but uh, it, you know this really rich company history, and I'm sure we're gonna hear a lot more from our guests shortly. But let's go ahead and get into some more music. This next track is called Dixieland Drugstore, composed by Robert Holmes. Thank you. 
right, that was the Dixieland Drugstore, composed by Robert Holmes for Gabriel Knight. I love that track. Oh, it's so good, man. It's so good. It's so mellow. Um, I love that. I want to say, is it washboard? It's like a washboard? I, I think it's a guiro, which is sort of that egg-shaped ribbed instrument you kind of right. you know, scrape a stick against. I was thinking more like like deep south kind of music, so <laughs> I, I guess the, the washboard came up instantly in my head, but I, I get you, yeah. It, it, it's definitely one of those instruments that you don't see all that often. Right. Now, this track kind of plays in a a questionable area. You, you don't really know if it's, uh, you know, if you're in a, a safe place or if you're in a... Uh, deceptive place yeah and so it, and that music reflects it i think it's uh it's got some of those long longing blues kind of vibe to it yeah you, you walk into uh, willie's shop and he's none too keen on helping you out but yeah. you know you can you can press him for some information but he's not really too crazy about you yeah and whenever you ask him about stuff he just kind of like blows you off like wait I didn't, I didn't say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the game tries to make you feel smart because occasionally he'll like let something slip. Most of the time he'll be like, I don't know anything about that. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so uh, Robert Holmes. Let's talk about this guy a little uh, bit. He's, yeah. he's, a, he's a big player. Yeah. Uh, so he spent a number of years playing in popular bands in the L.A. Orange County music scene and joined the studio and post-production communities in Hollywood before being invited to become part of a small company we now know as Sierra Online, or we knew as Sierra Online, right. in the hills of Yosemite. <laughs> uh, he joined Sierra's stellar composition group and provided many of the groundbreaking and legendary early adventure game soundtracks that we know and love, including Hoyle Classics, uh, Gabriel Knight 1, 2, and 3. Those are probably his biggest titles. And in recent years, he's worked on Jane Jensen's Grey Matter, Lola and Lucy's Big Adventure, Mobius, Empire Rising, and of course, the Gabriel Knight 20th Anniversary Remake. Yes. And Robert Holmes has also composed a lot of other uh, things like original albums over the years. Yeah, quite a few on his uh, website. And we'll post a link to that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of various kinds of music, some atmospheric, some piano music, various different kinds of styles. Yeah. And a lot of theatrical scores as well. Yeah. So some of the other things he's done, he was a writer, member, and producer for the Scarlet Furies. Recording, performing, and production work with Steve Lukather, Leon Russell, Jim Messina, Peter Asher, Sting, Ario Speedwagon, and The Zombies, among many others. This guy's played with some heavy hitters. Yeah. So uh, he's also done work for corporate and media clients like Microsoft, Starbucks, Hewlett Packard, Amazon, Paramount, CBS, and Warner Brothers Entertainment. And these are both very condensed lists of some of the work that he's done. (laughs) Yeah, we had to chop it down a lot. And I kept saying, Gene, we got it. We yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring it down a little bit. You're like, there's so much stuff. I, I know everybody in this show, uh, from the writing credits to the composing credits, just has a massive resume. I and mean, we're talking about a Sierra game, so how could we not get into it? <laughs> and we'll get more into that when we get Robert on a little bit later. So yeah. I do want to bring up the music that we're playing today. So the game has several different options for music output in the initial setup. There's the bass level, which is geared towards the Sound Blaster type, so like the 16 Pro Audio, Spectrum Plus, and Thunderboard. And then there's an option for Extended Synth, and this includes the Roland SCC-1, the Sound Canvas family, Turtle Beach Multisound, Wave Blaster, and the Yamaha TG-100, or general MIDI modules in general. And uh, for the Roland MT-32 and compatible sound modules, you can use the Extended Synth as well, and then use the MT-32 mapping option to get the, the right sound in there. Now, 
we did listen to the MT32 version, and that's actually how I listened to it originally when I was playing the game. And it sounds really, really good, but it's very different. And I think this was a time where they were trying to phase the MT32 out a little bit mm-hmm. because, I mean, this is 93, and the MT32 came out in 87. So there was a lot of new technology, you know. I think you brought See this up. audio, yeah. yeah. And so... For this episode, we're going to be listening to hardware recordings from a CM500, which is General MIDI or the Roland Sound Canvas family. But we do want to play a clip from the AdLib version just to give you a sense of how that sounds different from the MIDI one. Right. And even though the MIDI was more available at this point, the AdLib, they still needed that backwards compatibility for a lot of other people. So let's just take a listen to the Dixieland Drugstore, but the AdLib version. can see why we uh, are only playing a clip from the ad-lib version. <laughs> yeah, sticking to the MIDI versions with a lot more uh, nice sound choices. <laughs> it, look, it's it's not bad if this is the only way you've ever heard it, but as soon as you hear the MIDI version, it's you can't go back. <laughs> can't this go back. was a hard time. There were so many different sound configurations, and we'll probably find out from Robert how that was, <laughs> how that must how that have worked been. Out. But let's get into some more music. Gene, what do we got next? We have the Historical Voodoo Museum, composed by Robert Holmes for Gabriel Knight. That was the Historical Voodoo Museum, composed by Robert Holmes for Gabriel Knight. That's such an odd one, isn't it? Yeah. It's it really like is. the the drums put you a little bit ill at ease, but the background texture is kind of soothing and is, of course, intentional. Yeah. Because you're in this area, you're in the Voodoo Museum talking to this, uh, uh, the, the curator, Dr. John, and... Who's kind of an intimidating guy. Yeah, like, you know, fiercely intelligent, but there's obviously something going on that he's not telling you about. You right. know, he's try- you're trying to size him up, and 
he'll he definitely does not like your questions at all as you're talking to him yeah and he's got his own agenda going on even though he's a curator yeah <laughs> yeah but it's just a really cool track it almost reminds me of like an indiana jones track like you know you walk into the temple of doom and it starts playing you know it's it's pretty cool yeah i know as a kid i would have said oh i hate this it's all like world music but as i've gotten older i like i don't mind this stuff so much maybe because yeah. <laughs> i grew up with it and, and it fits in the game so well you it, know there's a lot really of things does. that you know out of context maybe if you haven't played the game this might not you know it's a little bit ambient and you're not really sure what to expect here but with the setting and the scenery when you listen to it it just draws this amazing picture and the imagery is just incredible so um so the game takes place at the start of summer in 1993 in a humble bookstore in New Orleans, French Quarter. You play as the shop's owner, Gabriel Knight, a wisecracking Lothario and would-be author. He begins following a series of homicides dubbed the Voodoo Murders for their apparent voodoo overtones, hoping to use the police investigation led by his friend Detective Mosley as the basis for his new novel. As he draws deeper into the investigation with help from his witty and cynical assistant Grace Nakimura, Gabriel begins to link the murders with New Orleans voodoo past and the present-day criminal underworld, and discovers nearly forgotten truths about his own family's past. Yeah, something to note about Gabriel is that he's a serious skirt chaser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the game, almost any time you're talking to a woman, half the conversation is just him flirting. There's actually a part of the story very early on when you're examining the scene of the first murder when the mysterious Molly Getty pops up. She's driving by in her car and Gabriel just falls instantly in love with her. And, you know, that basically starts off the rest of the game. Right, right. She's very central to the story and... Their history is very intertwined, and you learn more about the Getty family and her and Gabriel's connection throughout the game as you as you progress through the story. Yeah, there's a lot of little story threads going on at the same time. It's There's a lot of intrigue that builds throughout the game. It's a really, really cool story. Yeah, and you don't get necessarily that deep into it until maybe like the third or fourth day. So a lot of questions, a lot of stuff. You're just researching and learning about the characters in the beginning. And as you know, the days progress, it just exponentially grows. Yeah. You start following a lot of these little loose ends that seem like nothing. And then they get more and more, Hey, wait, I, there's a connection between these two things that that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And you got to start chasing it down. So one of the things that's really compelling about Gabriel Knight is the attention to detail and capturing the atmosphere. And, and I think we've talked about it, but Part of it is because Jane and the rest of the team did a lot of research, extensive research, on the histories of both New Orleans and voodoo and voodoo in New Orleans. And Brian was even able to pull up a bibliography from the manual that the team used, much like a research paper. So there's a list of so many books that they cited. That oh, yeah. I mean, down to like accents and voodoos and like African culture and tribes and voodoo in Africa and different types of voodoo. And there was just so much thought and research that went into this that it's incredible that they were able to write such an in-depth story but keep it in still this fictional world yeah there's actually a meta section in the game where you attend a lecture on historical voodoo and you talk to this professor hartridge who's an expert on african cultures and voodoo and he's you know he moves the plot forward but it's a great way for both gabriel and the player to learn about a history they may not know that much about and what's really cool is because so many of these things are almost unbelievable the whole truth is stranger than fiction it's really easy to stay engaged there's so many things that go on in the game that when they start throwing like 
magical spells and people getting possessed and all this craziness, you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, it makes, makes you sense. believe you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, I was that's like, probably I was like, real, right? Yeah, that totally happened, right? Um, <laughs> it's funny, too, going back to the lecture, right? Gabriel... Uh, and this is like the subtle humor in the game. Gabriel falls asleep during the lecture. Yeah. <laughs> he, he passes out. He's just like, because the, the professor goes on and it's very, it's a lot of knowledge. And I think that they timed it out to where at me as a player, I was starting to be like, okay, I'm a little bit overloaded here. I need a break. And all of a sudden my character falls asleep <laughs> and I'm like, well, that was, <laughs> that was convenient, but you get a lot of great information in that. And you go to the professor's office and if you ask him a question that he already answered, he says, well, if you were listening to my lecture, you would know that it's this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Like those little nuances are, are what make the game so charming. So speaking of the writing, let's talk about Jane Jensen uh, a bit who wrote and designed Gabriel Knight. Jane earned her BA in computer science from Anderson University, and prior to working in games, she was a systems programmer at Hewlett Packard, but that's only the beginning of her impressive resume. According to her bio on Pinkerton Road, she's a 20-year veteran of the gaming industry. Jane Jensen is an internationally renowned game designer. Her Gabriel Knight PC Adventure Games won numerous industry awards and continue to be fan favorites in the adventure community. And just so you don't think that all she's done is Gabriel Knight, she has had an incredible resume over the years. When she was at Sierra, she worked on EcoQuest, PoliceQuest, King's Quest VI as a writer and co-designer. In 2003, she co-founded a company called Oberon Games and worked as a designer on a few titles like the Inspector Parker series and one of the first, a series of unfortunate events games. Mm -hmm. She also worked independently on titles like the Agatha Christie series and Women's Murder Club series as a designer and director, Dead Time Stories as everything, creator, designer, director, <laughs> Grey Matter, Dying for Daylight, and most recently she founded another company, Pinkerton Road, her most recent company in 2012, where she created, designed, directed, and wrote Mobius Empire Rising and the Gabriel Knight One remake. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, and it goes on and on from there. She's written novelizations of the first two Gabriel Knight games, released a graphic novel of Gabriel Knight that came out with the remake. And right now she's actively writing romance novels under the pen name Eli Easton. Yeah. Dozens of novels there. It's not exactly my cup of tea, but this is an impressive resume. It's yeah, like I, so I was, much work. I was looking at some of the comments and reviews of her books and yeah. they are like, outstanding like her writing ability is incredible um not my particular style uh but uh, of you know what i'm into for light novels but uh, but you know like there there's an audience for it and she's a, an incredible writer i have to say i am i think we should all be more like jane jensen i mean a powerhouse yeah. of a designer, developer, writer. She had her hands just in everything. And we were watching the making of this game. There's this video on YouTube. I guess when they released the game, they put out a making mm -hmm. of. And you can see Jane Jensen literally in every part of the game. She's like there when they're doing the voice acting. She's there, you know, obviously we're talking with the graphic designers, with the writing, with the composer, like everything. And she's just really um, a, a very well-rounded and outstanding individual. Yeah, she is incredible. And with that, let's get into a little bit more music. So we have a couple of tracks from the police station, and we're going to start with the first track that you hear when you walk in, the sort of the normal track during the police station, composed by Robert Holmes. Thank you. 
That was the Police Station main theme composed by Robert Holmes for Gabriel Knight. The first thing that I always think of with this track is officious. Like, it sounds like some <laughs> pompous jerk at the police station. And there is one right at the front desk <laughs> who just yep. is like, what the hell do you want? Get out of my face yeah. all the time. Any question you ask him is met with just, I don't, I'm like two days away from retirement. I don't have time for this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this track, it starts out, it reminds me of uh, X-Files a little bit. Yeah. It's kind of got a little X-Files in there. and uh, But then it goes into this... The, you know this whistleblowing Mardi Gras kind of police station march. It's it's very it's very strange, but it fits <laughs> so well. And even though there's that kind of jerky guy at the counter, the the rest of the officers are really nice. This is where you meet Detective Mosley, and just it's got its own kind of humor baked in, you know. And there's uh, I think a lot that can be said about the music as far as how it correlates with the situations that you get in inside this police station. Yeah, and there's a there's a whole puzzle involved with copying things in a copy machine while trying to distract the police and steal your friend's badge and <laughs> yeah, it's yeah you do some extra legal things in this game which nowadays <laughs> would not be so uh so well looked <laughs> looked yeah. upon kind of slap them on the wrist and <laughs> game. but uh let's go ahead and get into our next track so in the police station there's an interrogation that takes place and uh it's with this really kind of wacky character that you meet called crash and uh he is kind of shifty and you don't know what to expect from him but this interrogation is pretty intense so let's listen to that and we'll be right back Interrogating Crash, composed by Robert Holmes for Gabriel Knight. This is a really cool track. When I first heard it, I was like, oh man, it is on. Look at this, like, this cracked out druggie and he's you know he's he's not answering any of your questions what what's what's going on what's he up to what does he know yeah and the music actually just fits so well because in the beginning you get this like kind of like stern cop kind of vibe right it's yeah. like the the officer the law is kind of like you know this is what we're doing it's got you know kind of this beat down kind of sound and then crash he is this drugged out like kind of informant or um he's sort of like a low-level drug runner right 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 and 
you can hear when he starts kind of talking, that's when you get that very almost delusional piano sound in the background. It's like that. And it's very skittish. Yeah, it's a little skittish, a little uneasy. And I think that it just works so well with this with this investigation and this interrogation. So for those of you who are music nerds, you'll notice that that track is in 7-4. So there's seven beats to the measure, which is what gives it a little bit of that sort of jerkiness over the whole track. So And that little kind of like arrhythmia sound here. Yeah, it feels like the track is like starting over constantly. And it really works because this scene only is like a minute or two long and there's yelling. There's all sorts of like, I don't know, uh, mania going on. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the gameplay a little bit. So Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers, is a point-and-click puzzle-solving adventure game created by Jane Jensen. It's a little bit different from Sierra's other Quest series games like Space Quest because it has a realistic setting and it focuses more on mature themes and detective work, despite some of the supernatural elements and humor. It's a little bit more similar to the company's earlier games, the Laura Bow series. Yeah, you know, I think too, because this game has a little bit more darker like adult humor yeah that that could be why it's so different from like space quest and maybe even even king's quest has some kind of child goofy humor in there too but this this does take it to a a very you know more adult yeah mature approach and i would say not in the sense of like edginess or juvenile mature it's sort of you know just things that i wouldn't have picked up on really as a kid maybe as much and I think playing it as an adult, maybe I appreciate maybe I appreciate it differently, but you just replayed it too. So Yeah, I, I don't know many games that talk about human sacrifice. Yeah. So. It's, <laughs> it's definitely true. a heavy one for a kid. Yeah. Uh, so the game uses an icon-based interface similar to Sierra's other titles, you know, with uh, talk, look at, that sort of thing. Kind of the verbs, the main verbs. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And throughout the game, there's still plenty of inventory-based puzzles you know, use item on thing, but it's heavily inclined towards dialogue. So typically Gabriel will have to interrogate other characters, choosing conversation topics and gradually unlocking new clues and advancing towards the mystery's solution. Yeah. Throughout the game, you go between various locations, interrogating people through lengthy, but well acted dialogue trees. You start the game in the French quarter, gradually opening up areas in the greater New Orleans area, and even a brief visit to overseas locations towards the end of the game. Conversations with the main characters always have these common questions that you can ask. So like, what do you know about voodoo? And, uh, you know, tell me about yourself or tell me anything, you know, has these kind of common questions and you can kind of play with that and learn more about the, the actual personality of the character. But they also have conversations that have keywords that will appear when you ask specific questions related to that person's point in the gameplay. And doing that will kind of unlock more dialogue and more questions that you can ask. And the interrogation can kind of continue and be more of a an eye-opening experience as you kind of piece together different puzzles from different dialogues. Yeah, so some of the questions are specific to certain people, but some questions just open up the things that you can ask to everybody. So sometimes you'll have a new clue, you'll get the little hint jingle and be like, ah, I have something that I can ask to that person that would definitely know about this thing. Yeah, so for example, in the uh, French Quarter in Dixieland, um, Dixieland Drugstore, the shop owner says, um, something along the lines Cabri of Cabri Saint Court, and then Gabriel can go, "Hey Grace, <laughs> could you do some research for me? What is Cabri Saint Court? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like all suave, <laughs> like he talks." Um, and she might say, "Oh, I have, I have no idea." 
but some other person later on will have oh be like this is exactly what it means it means you know goat without horns and you know as the thing goes i should probably not give that away right yeah <laughs> so anyways uh but all you have to do is look up a french book so you'll be all right yeah it means it actually it's it's kind of maddening because you know if you've played the game you know what it means but everybody else is stonewalling you until like two-thirds of the way through <laughs> nobody wants to tell you what that phrase means right right so the game follows a structure a little bit more like a novel with each part of the game playing out non-linearly across 10 days. So you can walk back and forth across these various locations, but once you've progressed enough of the story, you start on a new day. So they're really more like individual chapters, a little bit like a choose your own adventure kind of thing. And there's even an in-game cassette tape system that you can use to listen back to previous conversations. So if you jump back into the game, you're on like day four and you're like, I don't remember exactly what I needed to do. I know I was talking to this person. You can listen to those conversations without having to travel all the way over there. Right. That was very convenient because sometimes I had to listen to like, what did she say again? Like, I totally missed that part. Like, or what was, it was like an hour ago. Like, I don't remember what she said. And then you can go back and listen. And that's a really nice way to not have to travel everywhere. And characters don't repeat themselves usually until you get to the end of a dialogue. So if you missed something, some key clue, and, and since the game is so heavy on dialogue and trying to figure out clues, it's a really, really helpful system. Yeah. Uh, ironically, despite being a Sierra game about voodoo murder cults, there's actually very few ways to die in the game. Sierra, <laughs> Sierra games were notorious for killing off players in these weird kind of unpredictable and sometimes cruel ways, like forgetting an item early on or moving something the wrong way or interacting in just something that they weren't expecting during QA. <laughs> so, yeah, or sometimes just walking on the map, you know, just yeah, a little yeah. bit off. Oh, you fell off a cliff. Yeah. Start over. Uh, for those of you who know a bit about Sierra history, it shouldn't be a, a surprise as Jane Jensen worked on so much other stuff. We talked about earlier King's Quest VI, which, like Gabriel Knight, remains one of Sierra's best games due to its top-notch storytelling and being relatively forgiving for adventure game players. Yeah. Com- so it's not really... The puzzles are what's challenging. You, you don't have to worry about dying much. Yeah. If For those of you who've played King's Quest V, compare that to Six. Six is like... Well, King's Quest V was like a massacre. <laughs> like oh, you could die in every the, situation. I just need to say, murder boat, yeti pie. And then, and you know, <laughs> if, if either of those two things make you mad, then... But King's Quest Six, I don't remember any puzzles that were like that. I remember right. a few tricky ones, but I think it was a reasonable game. And, right. So it was probably because of her writing and she was well she directing. co-designed it i yeah. believe as well right right so um let's get into our next track this is a priest to kazanu and we're gonna play a little bit of a different version than the general midi we've been listening to this is from the 20th anniversary edition so let's take a listen to that and we'll be right back
That was A Priest to Casanu from the 20th anniversary edition of Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers, composed by Robert Holmes. This is a very cool version. I'm glad we played the 20th anniversary edition because it's a little bit... The, the piano keys towards the ends there, when it gets like kind of pompous and powerful, um, they're just so much more clear. You get it, too, in the MIDI version, but it's just not as well pronounced. And uh, this is just a, a really nice kind of semi-regal semi-formal sound that has a very nice kind of distinct tone behind it i like that one of the things that's funny about describing this music is that it really does fit the character this is a rich high society lady uh a little bit pompous a little bit of a busybody. you have to sneak into her house disguised as a priest in order to get her to spill the beans on some stuff about voodoo so there's like <laughs> these elements of you know seriousness but also a little bit annoying yeah a yeah a very strict old catholic woman who's just very particular about um gabriel's hair or you know like <laughs> I, I loved it it was such a great scene it was very, it was very good and the music just fit perfectly with it um let's get into another track this is the bayou and this is a very different track than that last one but it's it's so great so let's take a listen we'll be right back That was The Bayou, composed by Robert Holmes for Gabriel Knight. I just get taken away every time I hear that track, which uh, is funny because you're running around in a bayou with no directions and you get lost, <laughs> very literally. Yeah, and but, the narrator's like, Gabriel doesn't know where he's going. It's a good part of the game, but uh, it, the track is just so, it's so mysterious and so um, kind of... It, it almost makes me want to cry. <laughs> like it's There's a weird interplay powerful. between like creepy and beautiful. Right, this right. This track. I love right, it. Right, right. So Gabriel Knight was a groundbreaking game in terms of interactive storytelling with fully voiced conversations and beautiful backgrounds and character art. The game also features 3D animated cutscenes as well as comic book panel cutscenes kind of throughout the game as well. Yeah, both of those happen at various points depending on what the story calls for. There's a couple of really cool scenes towards the very end of the game where you see some pretty dramatic action happening in the comic panels. Yeah, and it's nice because there's no text or anything, so it has this kind of old superhero vibe but like murder mystery, so yeah. it's, it's nice. There is voiceover behind it, so it's very engaging. Yeah. The game's backgrounds are done in a hand-painted style by John Schrodes, a Sierra veteran who worked on other titles like EcoQuest, Castle of Dr. Brain, 
King's Quest VI, Gabriel Knight II, and Space Quest VI. Gabriel Knight also uses detailed character portraits during the dialogue tree conversations with other characters. So when you engage in a conversation, a character portrait will pop up. And while you're having these conversations, the mouth movements are even synced with the speech to give it an extra sense of realism. And uh, yeah, they're very rich, very detailed. And I think that that just leads to the storytelling, right? Because the, the graphics themselves, when you're in the world, are fairly general Sierra graphics for the, like the 90s, right? But mm-hmm. like certain scenes are happening, like you see, see a certain item or a serpent or something like that. It's so detailed and it looks so clean. So this wasn't the first game that Sierra did with voice acting. They had a few other games like Space Quest Four, which had a CD version with, which I love the voice acting by Gary Owens. But the entire <laughs> cast of this game was just a star-studded Hollywood cast for the time. And they talk about this in the making of video that we'll also post a link to. But we have Tim Curry as Gabriel Knight, Leah Ramini as Grace Nakimura, Mark Hamill as Frank Mosley, not sounding like the Joker in this one, <laughs> Leilani Jones as Molly Getty, Michael Dorn, who you might know as Worf from Star Trek as Dr. John. He's got this beautiful bellowing voice. Like, oh, I love it. It's so good. His, his voice acting is so good. Very short with you, though, which yeah. I guess works because Worf is the same. Yeah. Virginia Capers as the narrator who really adds a lot of flavor. I want to say, I want to say, you know, Tim Curry did an excellent job, but Virginia Capers without her narration, I think you would lose so much. She's got this just beautiful old storytelling voice that just captures, I think, New Orleans like perfectly. And like all Sierra games, definitely pokes fun at you if you do anything stupid. Like, Oh, she's like the grandma that like is tough love. She, <laughs> she, she, she'll, Gabriel does not know how to use this. Or, you know, like she'll just be like, she'll put you in your place. Pretty you much. Know? Yeah. And, she also reads the newspapers when you, which you can read every morning, which I don't know. It's like you, you grab your coffee, you read the newspaper, you listen to the, the bookstore theme. That's how I want to start all of my days. <laughs> <laughs> and how could I forget Jim Cummings, who is, if you listen to any early cartoons from the 90s, the whole Disney Channel block, you know Jim Cummings' voice. He plays the ridiculous Sergeant Frick at the police station. Talk to that guy and exhaust all of the options if you play the game. They're hilarious. <laughs> he does a few other minor voices, right? Yeah, just sort of like incidental characters, people that have like a few lines. Yeah, but you can see all this on the making of video, which is really, really awesome and uh, kind of paints a picture for how these characters got into the role. I mean, like, it's interesting to me, like Tim Curry as... You know, he's a British actor, but he pulls off this like Louisiana, like kind of wisecracking jerk, like, <laughs> ve- like very well. And I, I just think like it's an all-star cast and they just knocked it out of the park. So we're actually going to be playing one more track before we introduce Robert Holmes. This is the inner wheel or Wolfgang's theme from Gabriel Knight.
That was the inner wheel or Wolfgang's theme from Gabriel Knight Sins of the Fathers. It's a pretty intense track. Yeah, we played it on one of our expansion packs and we got ourselves on a long journey to actually bring <laughs> Robert here. So This is where it's all started, guys. <laughs> all right, so we've been talking about the music and the game for a while, but we're very pleased to introduce our guest, Robert Holmes. Hello. <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> Hi there. Yeah, so uh, we've, you know, we've been talking about the music and Gene and I have been sharing our thoughts and you know memories about the game and the audio. And we're, so we're very, very excited and very thankful that you made some time to chat with us today. So thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start at the beginning. What was life like growing up before you got into all of this music business? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I was really lucky. I, I grew up about 20 minutes from Hollywood and uh, the little town Whittier that I grew up in, there was something in the water because there were a bunch of just amazingly talented musical people. Um, you know, some of the guys I played with as a kid, Rusty Anderson, who's now the lead guitar player for Paul McCartney for wow. 15 years. Wow. Um, other guy, guys who played with Burt Bacharach, guys who played... Uh, it, it was a really fertile uh, period in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. And we were close enough to Hollywood that we were affected by all that. And the, the thing was, you know, you'd put together these great bands and then you'd go to Hollywood and you'd play in these killer clubs and you'd play, you'd get to open for some, you know, idols and see all the legendary bands at places like the Whiskey and, and the Troubadour and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it was... Uh, I was really fortunate not just to be musically influenced by all of these legends, but to get to, you know, see them and, and hear them in person. And then as I sort of developed um, my sort of musical path, uh, I did a lot of, of recording and touring and, and then uh, a lot of studio work in L.A. and was doing... Um, a lot of kind of the, the cliche, you know, seventies rock kind of stuff, working with people <laughs> like Toto and REO Speedwagon and Fleetwood Mac people and stuff like that. And, and so, you know, that it was really brilliant and, and wonderful, but you know, it, it, it never really exactly, I, I was good. I wasn't great. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I ended up doing a lot of post-production and, and film, scoring kind of was what I got really passionate about. And that all, you know, kind of came in really handy later with Sierra, obviously. So could you tell us about your musical background, like how you kind of got into music and where you kind of gravitated towards what styles and stuff? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I probably first actually got turned on to music. Um, I, I grew up in a really liberal church that was very musically inclined and had all kinds of, you know, all kinds of music. And this was long before um, churches really got into that production kind of side of it. But um, so I was exposed to a lot of great spiritual music. And then as I grew up, um, I also had older siblings. Both my brother and sister were over 10 years older than me. So what would happen is they they were influenced by all the amazing artists in the 50s and 60s, and they would turn me on to it, and then they would hand me down their albums and, and records and, and stuff. So I, I had all this wonderful influence of 
virtually anything that happened from like 1935 on. And I also had a real passion for Hollywood history and uh, film music and people like Max Steiner and, and Aaron Copeland and uh, all, all of the stuff that sort of came out of classic Hollywood. So that, of course, looking back now, had a huge influence on me because those guys were all about really memorable themes and motifs and sort of, you know, being very emotional with, with themes. So kind of all mixed together and, and went down that road. Yeah, I mean, you covered it a little bit, but were there any particular artists that were a really big influence? I mean, it's when you're talking about music, there's so many different places where it comes from, but I'm just yeah. curious, yeah. Um, you know, I was influenced a lot by a lot of the guys in the late 50s, you know, Elvis, Buddy Holly, uh, of course, Lennon and McCartney in the early 60s, and just about anybody English, um, <laughs> you know, was really, really into a lot of the, the English bands. And then got very, very deep into, you know, what's now, now kind of called the progressive side of, of uh, that 70s rock scene with bands like Yes and Genesis right. and Super Tramp and, and uh, Gentle Giant, things like that. I can only imagine what that must have been like. Just so much, yeah, like you said, fertile ground for music. Yeah, I, you know, it, it was so fortunate you know, to, to be exposed to all that. And, and one of the other things that really had a huge influence on me, and I, I just thank my parents so much for this. They went out when I was about 10, they went out and bought this old antique 1922 player piano. And this thing had like 300 vintage rolls of all of these old standard songs. And, and my folks were very social. They would throw big parties and, you know, groups of people would gather around this piano for hours and we would just, you know, be exposed to these old classic Tin Pan Alley songs and we would all learn them and sing. And so that, that was a great influence as well. And, and it's funny because years later, I was always more of a guitar player than a pianist. But um, when I was trying to teach myself piano, I, I really set the standard high because of what I had seen in this, these player piano performances. And I, I didn't learn till years later that these guys were usually, you know, they were doing like three, four, five-handed <laughs> versions of these tunes. There's no there's no <laughs> way a single guy could play that. You know? That's so, so incredible. Um, but it yeah, but it was a, a great, great experience to have that. So uh, kind of moving over to um, your connection with Jane Jensen. We were talking about her earlier as the lead designer and writer for Gabriel Knight in the series. How did you guys meet? Um, I was assigned to one of her earlier projects, which was more of an educational game um, as a producer. And I had just done uh, Hoyle Classics and had done, uh, been a producer and, and composer for that. And it was actually funny because I remember the first week I started on the team, you know, I was kind of intrigued by Jane. She was a very interesting person. And, and uh, so I went up and said, hey, you know, let's, we should have lunch and, and you know, get to know each other. And, and she was very, very skeptical and uh, <laughs> guarded. Um, and, you know, she it wasn't until really months later that uh, she sort of let let down that guard and we got to know each other. But um, yeah, it, it just started, you know, as a, as a very uh, straightforward producer designer. 
dynamic and we just became great, great friends. And as she was starting to really develop the vision of, of Gabriel, um, we would every day, uh, you know, the office at Sierra was very close to Bass Lake. And every day we would go out for a couple hours and just walk around the lake and talk about, you know, the her vision, talk about the, the ideas, talk about the characters, talk about the plot. And, you know, for a, a composer, that was an incredible opportunity to be there from the very beginning and, and as the vision was developing and really, you know, get that deep into it. Yeah, we were talking about Jane's uh, resume. I mean, that's all we really know her from. And she just it seems like such an incredible woman. Like just, and I, th- f- yeah, I think I, that shows in her writing, too. Like, we, we, you know, I played through Gabriel Knight just recently, and I feel like I had this connection with all the characters, but it's because of her narrative that I was able to make these really personal connections. And that that's a very it shows a very strong character as a writer to be able to do that and suck some player in to this world and completely be enthralled and believe everything that's going on. Yeah. And the character's voice just have a great sense of authenticity that I just, you don't see often enough in games really. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, she, she really lives her characters and, and uh, you know, we've obviously over the years spend a lot of time talking about that and, and talking about her various ideas and, she also, I think, one of her other real strengths is her just unbelievable ability to obsess and focus and research. And if you look at, you know, Gabriel 1 and, and GK2 and GK3 and all of these pieces, all of these fictional worlds are so rooted in deep, deep reality and research and historical elements that she then weaves in. And that's a, a really interesting process to live around because literally, you know, for instance, when we did GK2, our life pretty much was about Bavaria for about two years. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that's kind of the way it goes. Well, everything I know about voodoo, I learned from Jane. So I'm, <laughs> I'm very fortunate. <laughs> yeah. And I think the very first time I discovered New Orleans as a place that I wanted to go to was because of this game. I was also very young at the time, so I wasn't very worldly, but I still haven't been and I really still want to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's really interesting the way we've had so many people, you know, share their experiences of, hey, you know, I went and saw all of the locations or, you know, people have made great videos where they visit all the locations. And, and it's just so cool, you know, to see people inspired that way. So a question that I had is you mentioned that Jane would talk about how the, the story was forming in her mind. I'm curious how the story was pitched to Sierra, because I know they had a philosophy of giving designers essentially free reign to make the story that they wanted. How did it go from just a concept to, you know, a project that was going to be funded, that was going to become a game? Well, Sierra would do uh, sort of quarterly reviews where, uh, you know, designers would show up and pitch their ideas and, and, Sometimes they'd have proof of concepts and they'd take it, you know, a little farther down the path. But Jane had been, you know, working really closely with Roberta, obviously, and Roberta knew her potential. And they had already, I think, shared that she really felt driven to try and create this sort of adult flank for Sierra, this more mature side of Sierra. And, uh, 
I think, you know, she had a lot of support from Ken and Roberta to go down that path. I don't think they knew exactly what, how it would manifest or, you know, I, I'm not really sure that they necessarily had a clue like any of us, uh, mm -hmm. you know, how well Gabriel would work or not work. But, um, I, I think they, they really did go out on, on a limb and support Jane and going down that path. Right. So you talked about kind of how you were brought into the fold, but how did you actually, how much time did you get to work on the soundtrack for Gabriel Knight? And what was the, um, like, how did they work this at Sierra? Like, where did music kind of fall into the, the creation of the game? Well, it, it's, um, because I know it, it, I know these days a lot of composers are brought in very near the end, but it doesn't sound yeah. like that was the case with you. Yeah, it was kind of unusual because I was the producer as well. I had been in, you know, when I first started at Sierra, I started in the music department doing Mac conversions of other games. And I did that for, I think, about nine months. And then I started sort of saying, well, you know, I want to do my own games and I also want to produce and so I started to move in that direction. And, and by the time we got to Gabriel, it was kind of the best of both worlds for me because I literally had my setup in the office. One side of my desk was my producer desk and the other side of my desk was my keyboards. So I would spend the first half of the day doing all the producer stuff and you know working and supporting the team. And then I'd turn around in the afternoons and I'd try and spend most of the afternoon writing music. Could you go a little bit into what you actually did as a producer? Because that role means many different things depending on which company or which game team yep. you're on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I've, I've been a producer in a lot of different mediums in, uh, you know, records and film and digital activities and other software and stuff. And it, it in a lot of ways, there are some things that just carry forward in most of the scenarios. It, and it's it tends to be sort of based on the film model. You know, the producers usually have financial responsibility. They have organizational responsibility to sort of care and feed the team and make sure things are on schedule and get anything that's needed, you know, handle any of the external relationships. You know, I would work with uh, the directors to line up the voice talent and all of that stuff and just whatever I could do to support, you know, the art team, the development team, Jane, of course, and, and the entire process. That makes a lot more sense. It was, it was hard to tell because, you know, we're, we're playing the game. We can see your name in the credits as producer, but we, we were both kind of scratching our head. Like, what does that actually mean here? You know, yeah. <laughs> it seems yeah. like Sierra was a, was a company that everybody was sort of a little bit involved in everything. That's kind of the impression that we got, at least at the time. Yeah. You know, it, teams, I mean, it got a little, um, siloed in that most of the teams, you know, would sort of take a, a piece of the building and you'd, you'd be together as a team for maybe, you know, a couple of years uh, on a project. Mm -hmm. And so you sort of develop these subcultures. Um, <laughs> but most of them operated in very similar ways. And and the camaraderie and the support between the teams and, and everybody at Sierra was just amazing. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and listen to some music while we have you on um, this track we've been saving for the entire episode because we uh, we wanted to put it right in the beginning of the show, but uh, we wanted to hear your thoughts on it. So this is St. George's Bookstore, and uh, it was composed by Robert Holmes.
Oh, the glory of General Mitty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was St. George Bookstore, composed by Robert Holmes. Gene, what do you... Th- I know. We've every been wanting time, to play this. Every time. I just... You know, people always say that when you hear certain kinds of music, it takes you back, you know, to a certain memory. And I just remember sitting in the den in front of the beige box with the little... Behind me, there was this kind of fake little zen room where you could go in. I don't know why this our, our our house had this, but like there was like a tiny little quarter of a room with like a pond in it. And I just remember looking out <laughs> and then yeah, it was so strange. And just like sitting in this room that was attached to the kitchen playing this game while probably my parents were yelling at me to go like do the dishes or what have you. It's <laughs> this this one brings me back. This is such a it's such an iconic song for the series, and I think this is something that you have this sense of security and safety, right? The game has all these very dangerous and uncertain areas, and something mis- mysterious and um, dark, and you know, there's all these different emotions going on in other parts of the city. But when you come to St. George Bookstore, you're welcomed and cradled cradled with this this track and and i think that giving a player the opportunity to have this kind of sense of relief is just so amazing and so um well composed it's the summarization of the gabriel themes throughout the game and i'm we're curious what was your process on this track specifically boy um well you know the main theme was the first the first tune i wrote for the series and that was a part of us sort of you know doing the proof of concept um and then i wanted to do alternate versions of that within the game and i think you know when when it came to this uh, very early room i remember uh you know the designers and the artists showing me Basically, because of the way the rhythm was going in our development cycle, I had to do a lot of the music before the rooms were actually built. So they would just show me the art, and then I'd say, well, okay, you know, maybe I'll do something in this style. And I'd go off and and try and and see what would happen. You know, looking at, at the art for this room, I mean, obviously there's so much history in that room. There's so much sort of warm and and nurturing rootiness of, of Gabriel's world and Grace's, you know, relationship to him and that that's where they happen and that this is where both, uh, you know, it's home for him and potentially because of all of the books and all of the history, there are a lot of answers there. So, you know, I, I wanted something that would just really, in, in sort of an old Hitchcock style, you know, Hitchcock used to say great things like, you know, you can't have the dark if you don't have the light. So, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it, it was kind of tr- going back to some of those those early uh, approaches. Gabriel Knight was a landmark game in the development of PC adventure games in terms of storytelling, voice acting, graphics, music. What was your process for composing the music in terms of the actual, you know, writing the music and putting it into the game? Um, as I, you know, as I said, most of it, I would just react to uh, some of the initial paintings for the rooms or the characters. And uh, Jane and I, you know, had sat down and, and sort of made an outline of, hey, you know, here's the plot points, here's the rooms, here's the characters, here's the kinds of themes we, we might need. Um, and we had done a lot of mutual research in terms of, of you know, 
doing a lot of media and, and movies and things having to do with New Orleans so that I knew I wanted to try and get some of that in there. I also knew musically I'm more of a pop guy, so you know, I knew it wasn't going to be terribly legit <laughs> in terms <laughs> yeah. of that. But um, in general, you know, I, I would spend time writing at the piano, and then um, once I would play a theme for Jane, and if she liked it, then I would go off and, and orchestrate it. And uh, then, you know, maybe I'd pull somebody in, uh, like Orpheus, uh, one of the guys in our sound group who was great at helping me add some of the rhythms and textures, uh, you know, depending on what the, the theme needed. And then as we got into building the rooms, you know, we'd throw the audio in and see whether it worked. And there were, you know, several places where actually things didn't work where we thought they would. And we made different decisions about where they should go. So you had written uh, like a specific track for a certain room and then you would listen to it back. And did you move that around or did you just scrap it and start over? Um, most of the time we kept just about everything I did, I think. Okay. Um, but in a couple of places it was like, Oh, you know, we need more tension here or we need, we need uh, a little more mystery here or it needs to be a little darker or something like that. I see. What specific hardware and software do you, did you use during the development? Um, in GK one, there wasn't, you know, wasn't a lot, uh, back then we thought, you know, we were bleeding edge because we were doing sound canvas. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we would do some stuff in Voyetra and then uh, digital performer, but, uh, you know, these, I mean, this was the wild west. There was, if we had been used, you know, in two years before this, you know, my themes were like six bleeps, you know, coming out. <laughs> so, uh, so we thought, wow, this is just a luxury, you know, to be able to have really bad strings and really bad pianos. Right, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were talking earlier, this game was designed for the sound canvas, um, as opposed to, you know, earlier uh, mini modules like the MT32. And um, the, the nerd in us, we're kind of wondering, like, if Sierra had any specific tools for the music, you know, specifically, or was it just something that you guys were using sound canvas, their built in tools or something like that? Um, you know, we were, it was interesting because the shop, because of Mark Siebert's relationship with Roland, there was a ton of Roland around. And so we were doing a lot of that. I actually privately was more of a Kurzweil, you know, yeah. Yamaha Korg kind of guy. Right. Um, so for me, it was kind of actually kind of a compromise to have to do stuff on, on sound canvas. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it worked out okay, but, but it was really nice, you know, when, by the time we got to the second game and I could just do the audio using anything I wanted to. Right. How were the uh, different arrangements handled for like the ad lib, the MT32 and the MIDI? I know we had kind of talked about the, uh, the different versions and it looked like in the manual they had mentioned it was maybe converted by somebody else we're not actually sure so we wanted to get you to clarify that yeah that was usually the case and in fact i think i mentioned that's the way i started uh, mark siebert hired me to do musical conversions and i worked with dan kaler for months and months uh, doing mac conversions which was actually a lot of fun dan was a great guy but yeah usually what would happen you know i i would focus on the main themes and then we would have somebody else on the team 
you know, work on conversions and they would do a version and then run it by me. And if it was fine, then we would move, move forward from there. So were there any major challenges during the development specifically as, you know, well, actually music or not, I'm just curious how, <laughs> how the producer, development process. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, in, um, there are always huge challenges and especially someplace like Sierra where we were kind of making it up as, as we went along. Um, and <laughs> a lot of, uh, you know, those challenges had to do with development engine changes that would happen midstream. So, you know, you'd be half a third of the way through a development cycle and suddenly the engine has changed and suddenly that just messed with everything. Ah, so, well, things things uh, haven't gotten much you know. better. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did. I mean, it was always worthwhile, but it was never pretty, you know. Um, but yeah, it, it was stuff like that, you know, mainly. But in general, compared to uh, things that could have gone wrong, uh, you know, we, we were pretty fortunate. Most of the time it worked out. Yeah, it looks like everything. I mean, it turned out great. So all you know, all the hitches that went you know along the way aside, everything uh, everything turned out really stellar at the end. So um, good job <laughs> tying all the pieces together. You know, a question we're curious about is: Did you actually get a chance to go to New Orleans at any time during the development process? No, um, neither I'm Jane or I'm surprised. I, yeah. 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 Now on GK2, we did. We actually, when we were, uh, when she was in design, we went to Bavaria in Germany and, and spent a lot of time there. And I, and I actually went to Wagner's grave and apologized. But, um, <laughs> oh, God. But, but no, we never, we never did. It wasn't until years later that uh, Jane actually got to New Orleans. But um, I, you know, it, it would have been nice, but the way our cycle was going, there just wasn't time. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, let's go ahead and get into another track. This is this is another phenomenal track. This is the Getty Estate, composed by Robert Holmes.
All right, that was the Getty Estate theme composed by Robert Holmes. I've already got long hair, but I feel like it grew a few more inches just listening <laughs> to that track. It brought me back. I- <laughs> this is a good one. Very powerful, really nice 80s kind of rock ballad behind it. Yeah, like that. sort of melodramatic. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I, I'll tell you a secret. It, I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, when I had to go back and revisit it for the anniversary uh, version, I realized what I was doing with that track specifically was paying homage to a band called Procol Harum. And uh, if you go and listen to A Whiter Shade of Pale or A Salty Dog, tunes like that are, are right in this sort of stream. I'm not familiar with that band, ne- so I'll have to look them up. Yeah, check out A Whiter Shade of Pale. You'll, you'll hear it right away. <laughs> awesome. So <laughs> let's move back over to um, some of your... Um, early kind of career at Sierra, how did you get started at the company? I called up Mark Siebert and I said, hey, you know, actually um, my wife, Stacy, had been hired by Sierra as a creative director. And, you know, we were in this little mountain town and um, it's kind of the only game in town in terms of something to do. And, and so I called <laughs> called up Mark Siebert. I was like, hey, you know, I've got the studio background and, and I've done a, a few things and, and, you know, I'd love to work with you guys if, if you ever need it and he was very cool and he you know gave gave me a, a chance to come in and do some stuff and and we went from there you know it's funny because we were going to ask if you actually had moved to you know be close to the company or if you were living in the orange county area still so it looks like you were situated in the in oakhurst or yep yep wow. yeah i had been we had been living on an island uh, bainbridge island in up in, near seattle and uh, we uh, we got this offer to be a part of Sierra, and uh, so we moved down to Oakhurst from there. Wow. It's not the first time I've heard that story of just, like, calling somebody up at Sierra, then getting a job and moving cross-country, like, a week later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, always thought it was, I always thought it was so odd that, you know, Sierra was in Oakhurst, because I've been through Oakhurst a million times, and it, there's nothing there. That's <laughs> true. There's not a lot there. So, uh, you know, you were talking about Bass Lake and stuff. I was at Bass Lake like a month ago, <laughs> just walking around. Well, so, yeah, yeah. Not too far from there. Awesome. So over time at Sierra, um, how did your career change? You talked about earlier on how you started doing music conversions and then ended up being a lead composer. But from the time that you started until kind of the the end or when Sierra dissolved or when you left the company, what had changed for you as far as not just your work, but um, the company dynamic? Well, you know, it uh, obviously the company grew uh, really, you know, ambitiously. And, and that anytime you have a company that sort of goes from different stages where you go from like 45 people to 100 people to 300 people to six, you know, every time you do that, the culture changes and things uh, mutate. My period that, that I was there in Oakhurst actually was pretty consistently wonderful. And uh, I had, you know, just a great great experience and of course it was it was just the best of of everything once you know jane and i were working on our projects together and then what happened was uh, i got this sort of surreal call to um work on a project uh for paul allen uh, working with the music artist sting as a as a producer wow 
it was the kind of thing where it was like, wow, you know, <laughs> well, that's I'm not sure an incredible I opportunity. can say no to this. So that, that was the reason why I ended up leaving Sierra and, and going up to Starwave to work with Paul Allen. Awesome. Well, we wanted to get into another track real quick. We're going to listen to Return to New Orleans, and then we're going to get back to a few more questions. I haven't heard that one in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> that was Return to New Orleans, composed by Robert Holmes. This is a really intense track. I, I think it's, I mean, very powerful, very dangerous. And there's something that's kind of interesting here. So in the beginning of the show, we were listening to the New Orleans city map theme, which is very lively, very Mardi Gras. Yeah. And now you're back in New Orleans after all this stuff has happened. And you get this complete change in dynamics, and now things are not looking so hot. Not, you know, things are starting to get very, very dark, and things are getting real. And I think this is a really good testament to that. I, th there's a lot of tracks that you play around with time signature, and, and I think it gives that a sense of instability. Just, yeah, yeah. I think it's a really effective use of that. Yeah, it's interesting that, that you mentioned that because you know when I heard you playing it, the first thing that came to mind was, oh, this is me doing Genesis. Um, <laughs> And because, you know, I love the whole seven, eight thing that Genesis would always do. Obviously, I've, I've used that a lot. But, but yeah, it, you know, it, it, Gabriel was a great vehicle for that kind of change where it was like, well, you know, you can do something that could seem pretty benign and, and nice and pleasant and melodic. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, you've got to do something really dark and really aggressive and really shift the mood. And so that was a great, you know, musical exercise. So from a visual side, when you're looking at that New Orleans city map, that first track, and it's very lively, what was your thought 
kind of going in, aside from, you know, sounding like Genesis track, uh, what was your <laughs> thought when um, you were told that, you know, in the story, this is where the character's kind of coming back home after learning all of this, this kind of secret of this mystery um, kind of surrounding his family? You know, I, th- I think I was trying to really foreshadow not only what he was already aware of, of the darkness that was building, but really sort of looking forward to, you know, things are going to get much heavier, much darker, and, and even, you know, moving into the second game, I mean, because we already knew where that path might lead. Um, so I wanted to try and just give hints of, you know, all is not well, <laughs> and and it's not going to get better, you know. So you mentioned something about the second game. You could sort of make whatever music you wanted. Do you feel like you got out you, the music came out the way you wanted it to in the first Gabriel Knight in terms of how it actually sounded to the player? Um, well, you know, I mean, the quality is not wonderful. And and actually the quality in, in the second game, because of the compression, is not wonderful. But what I am happy about and, and I really appreciate is that people don't seem to care about that. You know, people just seem to listen to the melodies and be affected by the emotion and somehow the musical intention of what I was trying to do, you know, seems to have hurtled over those, those problems, which is, is really rewarding for me. You said it like earlier, 25 years later, Dean and I are sitting here talking to you about this music because we are so in love with it. So it very much did make an impact on a lot of people. And I think that, you know, quality issues aside, I don't even, I don't hear any quality. You know, I don't hear any of that. So for me, it just sounds so incredible and and so well. We talk about this a lot with games. There is that relationship of that development of playing through the game and the associative memory and it almost doesn't matter the sound quality and i I don't mean to say that in a bad way it's just you it gets so ingrained that it like that's what it is yeah 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 Yeah, no i totally get that yeah i i think that's one of the cool things about games you know and and especially games of that period it seems to be right what happened so yeah, today we're focusing on the first game, but there were two more Gabriel Knight themes. How did your experience on the first game kind of shape the direction of the rest of the series? Um, well, you know, there were things that I wanted to carry forward in GK2, which I did, um, and I wanted to just go on creating alternate versions of familiar themes. You know, I wanted I wanted there to be a family of themes that in the Gabriel universe that would have a life that would extend and change depending on what happened, you know, with the characters. Um, as unfortunately, you know, as, as we got into the third game, I was really busy in other directions. And so, um, what ended up happening was I wrote a group of themes and then handed those off to the team. And so I was less involved, but in general, especially like going back for the new piano album, you know, it's, it's really interesting to go look at, at the three of them and, and still get a sense of continuity and still get a sense of, Hey, there is a musical universe that, uh, you know, seems to make sense within this piece of fiction. That makes a lot of sense. I was actually surprised to hear you say that, that you just handed off the themes. I, I haven't heard that kind of process all that often, especially in game development. That's, how do you felt that turned out? 
Uh, I, I I thought it went, you know, about as well as it could. I did like, I think I did 12 themes where I recorded all of it, it as I would have, you know, in the first two games. And so a lot of those were used. And then working with David Henry, you know, David Henry would come over and I'd play him stuff and, and he'd say, uh, well, you know, I can do this with that or I can do this with that. And he did a great job of extending my style yet injecting, you know, what he was great at um, and staying, you know, pretty true to the, again, the musical universe that we had set up. So um, it was great. It was very collaborative. You know, I, I definitely was involved as much as as I could be. Uh, and, you know, there are things in that game that I'm still really happy and proud with. You know, it's it's funny, the main theme from GK3 is actually one of my more popular. It's got like 60,000 views on YouTube. It's <laughs> weird. Yeah, and there was also the 20th anniversary remake that came out just a few years ago. We played a track earlier from it, the uh, Priest. The Kazanu uh, theme. Yeah, the Kazanu theme. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. How did it feel to revisit that music from the first game? <laughs> and what, what approach did you take kind of orchestrating differently, kind yeah. of Yeah, differently. Yeah, it, boy, it was really humbling <laughs> because... Yeah, I had to go back and listen to it. And a lot of it, you know, I hadn't heard for years and years. Um, and there were points where, where I was like, wow, you know, that's that's really good. I don't remember <laughs> how I, how so I did that. <laughs> and there were points where I was like, wow, I'm not sure I'd make that same decision. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, it, it was a, a really nice opportunity to be able to, to take something and say, well, you know, okay, I like these bones, what could I do to, to, you know, update it or improve it or make the quality better and still be, I mean, it was very tricky because as you've said, you know, people really love these and, and have a lot of associations with them. So you can't get too wild with it. You've got to stay honest and true to that. So you have to sort of balance that line between, okay, how can I make it better and update it, but keep it what it was. That makes a lot of sense. So we were going to get into a little bit of music, but you actually mentioned your new album that just came out. So let's play the Gabriel Knight One theme, reimagined for the piano album, A Simple Refrain.
That was the Gabriel Knight theme, one from A Simple Refrain, composed by Robert Holmes. So tell us about this album. Um, yeah, so, you know, I've, I've always wanted to sort of go back and capture things from all of the games in, in a sort of cataloged way that would have a nice quality to it. And um, through some other projects, I had worked with this wonderful pianist, Roger Hooper, who is just incredibly gifted, much better piano player than I would ever be. And um, he had a real appreciation of the games and the music. And uh, as we worked together on some other things, it just sort of came up, hey, you know, we should we should try some of this. And he did a, a few and they were just wonderful, you know, just beautiful. Um, and it was a very collaborative process where we would throw versions back and forth and the arrangements and the production. So I'm just really, really pleased with it. Really, really nice, you know, to know that the they're sort of there in a package and, and people can can enjoy them. Yeah. Where can we find your album? Where can we find this? I know I was listening to it on Apple Music. I think, Gene, you were listening to it on Bandcamp? I actually found it, I think, on Bandcamp. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of, it's in all of the digital, you know, Bandcamp, Amazon, Apple Music, um, just about anywhere. And then CDs are available on CD Baby, I think. Okay, great. Yeah, I was listening to this a lot in the evenings. Uh, at night, I had um, I got the little Amazon Echo, and I was I was letting it, you know, play this album and just kind of turning off the lights, and it's just so soothing, so calming. Um, but then you get this these amazing themes that you kind of know and love uh, done in a, just a very comforting way. Yeah, it's, it's, a really, awesome. it's a really nice recapitulation of all of the themes you've written for various games over the years, because. Uh, I know Gabriel Knight is probably your most well-known game, but there's so much great music, you know, throughout Mobius and Grey Matter and all of these other games, which are well-known in their own right. But uh, it's nice to have it all in one place. Yeah. No, thanks. Yeah, it, it, you know, it it actually, uh, going back to that progressive rock influence, um, Rick Wakeman, you know, from Yes, has done a couple of wonderful piano albums. And actually, one of my favorite albums of his over the years, uh, Six Wives, uh, which was mainly keyboard and piano. So that was a, a big inspiration in terms of doing something like that. Awesome. Uh, do you have any other projects that are currently in the works that you could talk about with us? Um, I, I have another new album that just came out uh, called uh, The Brothers Four Renewal. And uh, this is an album that I produced and did all of the orchestrations and, and the keyboard work and, and arrangements. Um, and this was re- a really labor, a great labor of love for me. These guys were a huge musical influence on me. Growing up, uh, they're legendary folk artists. These uh, these guys were on Ed Sullivan five times. They opened for the Beatles. They played for six presidents. Wow. Huge in the folk wow. world. <laughs> and so uh, what happened is, I, because I love their music, I had done a cover of one of their tunes, and I posted it up on Facebook. And about three days later, I got a call, and, and uh, they were like, hey, you know, we should do something together. So... Um, we ended up doing this whole album together where we took their classic songs and I built new arrangements around them. Wow. And, uh, How it's, humbling. It's just, That's got to be a, it's such an amazing opportunity. That's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something I'm, I'm really, really pleased with. So, so that's out as well. When does this come out? Uh, just came out last month. Oh, wow. Okay. I totally missed it. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. Right. Cool. 
Yeah. Awesome. And is that on the, the, all the digital platforms? It is. Yeah. E- excellent. Yep. Excellent. Wow. I just, I was so excited that the simple refrain came out and that was just a month ago. I mean, what? Yeah. Like I think it was also in January. You're right. Yeah. It's kind of been like my last two years has been working on these two albums. So, uh, it's nice to finally have them done and be looking forward to some new stuff. Now you're a busy, busy guy. <laughs> <laughs> So before we wrap up the interview, I think our listeners are going to want to ask us a few questions or going to want us to ask you a few questions. Uh, first of all, what can you tell us about voodoo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, there's um, in the anniversary, we did a, a really bad, funky, you know, remix little snippet that's just Gabriel saying that over and over <laughs> with, with a really bad loop behind him. And it's, it's probably one of my favorite musical moments of the series, but. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. We were going to either ask that or tell us anything at all. <laughs> but you one know, of the two. I, I have this amazing memory. Uh, I mean, Tim Curry was so cool and, and it was such a pleasure to work with him. And I, I just have this amazing memory of, you know, sitting, watching him through the glass, say that, you know, <laughs> so you I got to see it. it before it was the meme before it was, you got to see it as it was being made. That's awesome. Yep. That's so cool. I'll, I'll tell you guys a, a, a fun story. Um, and this is, this is exactly what it was like for Jane and I, we were so head down, heads down when we did GK one, we really had no idea if it worked or how it was going to go. And then we went to uh, the uh, Game Developer Awards at Universal Studios, and GK was nominated for something. And we were standing in line, and the people behind us were like, you know, whoever that guy was that wrote the music for Gabriel Knight should f-ing win something. <laughs> and, and Jane and I looked at each other like, wow, somebody heard the music. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's incredible. A, that's a great I, story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was fun. It's like, oh, okay. I guess it does matter. So <laughs> did it win? <laughs> uh, no, it didn't, oh. <laughs> but, but it was fun to know that somebody wanted it too. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. So Robert, I want to say, I cannot tell you how much it means to have this chance to speak with you. Brian and I both grew up playing a lot of Sierra games, and I remember personally trying to learn the St. George's bookstore theme on piano very early at like nine or 10 years old. And, you know, back when I played the game in 94, and Brian, I think he only played it for the first time and he fell in love. As we've sort of said time and time again, this is, you know, this is a game and an experience. It's really stuck with us and, and I think will stick with us over the years. So it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Uh, well, thanks so much, guys. It means so much, you know, to, to have people appreciate the music it did at the time and, and for it to, to still, you know, have some value and, and, and uh, mean something to people is just just doesn't get any better than that. So awesome. thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. So today we covered Gabriel Knight on PC, composed by Robert Holmes. Absolute blast talking to him. It was a childhood dream come true. Yeah, very interesting guy. If you want to find more uh, about Robert Holmes, we'll have a link on our website that points to his website. Uh, it's robertholmesmusic.com. And if you want more on the show, then check us out online at Pixelated Audio for show notes in the track list. We can also be found on Twitter at Pixelated Audio, and we have a growing and very active server on Discord. Yes. And if you want to leave comments, you can do so on the website. 
leave us a review on iTunes. That's always appreciated. Also, we have a patron. If you like the show and you want to support us and what we're doing for video game music preservation, you can um, pledge a few bucks and that's, you know, a few bucks goes a long way. So we want to say thank you everybody so far that it's supporting the show. That's, that's really important to us. And if you're new to our podcast, check out some of our past episodes like 107, Greece with Berlinist, episode 40, Grim Fandango with Peter McConnell. Yeah, I had to squeeze that one in there because, you know, it's a point and click adventure. It's kind of like the counterpart, you know, LucasArts com- counterpart to Sierra at the time. So Yeah, it's like the Sega Nintendo rivalry. And if you want <laughs> something a little bit different, check out episode 80 for Music Disc Volume 2. Yeah, it's been a while since we did a music disc. I think we're uh, we're, we're due overdue for, for one. Yeah, yeah, sure. And those are a lot of fun, and there's a lot of great music, a lot of exploration there. Oh, and also, again, we want to bring up the Library of Congress is putting together a concert for video game music, and there's going to be a lot of different speakers and stuff uh, attending. This is, takes place April fourth, fifth, and sixth, mm-hmm. I believe. And we have a pre-concert talk at six thirty on April fifth. That's a Friday in Washington D.C. at the Library of Congress. Yeah, so if you're in the Washington D.C. area, come check us out, and uh, we'll hang out and chat afterwards. Chat music with us. Stick around. It'll be an Austin Wintery concert right after that. It's going to be a really amazing series of events. Yeah. So we got one more track taken out the show. This is an excellent one. This is the ending theme for Gabriel Knight. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you back in a few weeks for the next episode. <laughs>